This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back, Second Story fans. Today we're going to get right into it. Our featured story is by Sadaf Ferdosi. She's a graduate of UChicago and a current student at Columbia College, Chicago. This was her first time telling the second story. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Sadaf and talking to her about the happenings and themes in her story. Stay tuned afterwards for that conversation. All right. Recorded live at Pub 626 on December 11th, 2015, Second Story presents Sadaf Ferdosi. I was 17 when my dad barged into my room. Did you know, he asked, clutching the cordless phone, seething. He was wearing his typical outfit, straight pajama pants and a pastel polo, green, but on his face was an anger I had never seen before. My first instinct was to flip through my mental catalog of misdeeds, trying to figure out what I had done wrong. Was it my math grade? Ditching the ACT prep class? Sneaking out of the house at 3 a.m.? It was only for ice cream. Before I could come up with an argument defending my poor math skills, or arguing that standardized testing is mass incarceration of the mind, (laughs) or defending my human right to ice cream, my sister, 12 and tear-stained, burst into the room. Mom's not answering her phone. Thank God. My dad wasn't angry at me, but at my mom. Shit. The knot in my stomach that had been growing slowly all day kicked up into my throat. My dad had found out about my mom's affair. He was here for confirmation. My sister wanted answers too. But I had only one. My parents' marriage was finally over. From a young age, I could tell my parents were different, loftier. A normal dinner time for other families included eating meatloaf and talking about Tom Brady. At my house, there'd be an entree of lubia polo served with a hearty tirade on Ayatollah Khomeini. Grocery shopping with my friends' families, I'd look on with jealous astonishment that they could buy whatever junk food they wanted with little persuasion. My parents, on the other hand, would pull me away from the candy island chide. I did not escape a revolution and a war for you to be a brat about a Hershey's bar. (laughs) What my parents lacked in understanding American football and chocolate bars, they made up for with books. I was dropped off nearly every Saturday morning at the public library and picked up at three in the afternoon. It was the only place I was allowed to go by myself. Here was where I discovered the compassion of books, how anyone who felt alone found someone or some text who shared with them an uncanny resemblance. I found an empathy within those books that I'd been too shy to ask my parents for. Over time, I imagined writing my own books, not their content but they're dust jackets, emblazoned with praise. (laughs) Sadaf Ferdosi is Brown Joan Didion. (laughs) Sadaf Ferdosi is like David Sedaris, except with Iranian parents and more body hair. (laughs) I (laughs) know, that's funny. (laughs) I never told my parents about this little dream of mine. I had a feeling they wouldn't like it, and so I kept it to myself. It was in the eighth grade that I put together that perhaps the answers I wanted about my parents, how different they were, their relationship could be found in books. The library had even put up a sign on where to look, romance. The first time I had read Jane Eyre, I recognized my mother. She had grown up in a home of violence and neglect within a broader landscape of repression. 
except it wasn't the English countryside with their austere values, but post-revolutionary Iran, at the brink of war with Iraq. At 19, she was given the opportunity to move to an unfamiliar place, perhaps to seek adventure, but essentially to raise children. She wouldn't settle in bleak Thornfield Hall, but rather bleak Big Rapids, Michigan. In my dad, I saw Mr. Rochester. Much older than my mom, he could be surly, bad-tempered, and quick to anger, which made it frightening to approach him sometimes. But it couldn't be denied that it came from years of overwork and coping with inexpressible pain. Mr. Rochester was strict with his estate, making sure his staff was in line and personally inspecting his tenants' work. And my dad was strict with us. He would assign his own homework over summer vacation and three-day weekends. My sister and I were only allowed to eat candy if we brushed our teeth right after. It was one of the few times I made eye contact with him before he'd peer into my mouth with a flashlight, clucking his tongue at the stubborn plaque still remaining on my molars. At the end of the driveway of our first house, he spray-painted a line that we weren't allowed to cross while riding our bikes. Several feet from that line, he spray-painted another. Cross this one, and you are definitely in trouble. But these rules, these boundaries, to me, felt like love. In the novel, Mr. Rochester pushed Jane Eyre, goaded her, picked arguments with her. And growing up, I'd watch my parents pick fights with each other, too. Strangely, it was only through their fights I was given details on their arranged marriage. The first time they were allowed to speak to each other alone, they were walking in the park when my mom asked, do you pray? This story almost always came up during one of their fights, because then she'd snap, I was so dumb, I should have asked if you had money. <laughs> At the time, though, I guess she was pleased that he had answered yes and agreed to marry him. But my dad would then counter, I was so dumb, I should have left you in Iran. There was something about the struggle, the tempestuous back and forth, the being and the not being together that made Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester's equals, and it quelled the doubts I had about my own parents. Through their conflicts, I figured they were equals too, and also in love. When my sister was learning to read, our bedtime routine involved her reading aloud to my mom and me. She was obsessed with princess collections and a short paperback on sharks. We listened to her stumble over words, sounding them out, mixing the new ones she learned with her first ones. In an almost seamless transition, my sister tackled vocabulary and focused more on her performance, playing with exaggerated voices, experimenting with accents, switching from English into Farsi if the word was funnier sounding. The rule was, if we laughed, she'd start back at the beginning. And we never finished a book. <laughs> My dad didn't like it if we stayed up past bedtime, so we tried to be quiet. This usually resulted in failure, and he'd often come in and scold us. My mom would then laugh at his temper, which made things worse. As we got older, though, he would come in and say, this is my most favorite room in the world. Thank God we weren't in trouble. A happy moment. Shit. This moment wasn't going to last. When we moved houses when I was 15, the dynamic changed. I became overwhelmed with school and adolescence. My sister and I got our own rooms. Our old routine lapsed into a rarity. One night, it was just my mom and me. I was playing with her hair when she confided, Sadath, I have a crush on someone. A radiating shock before I burst out laughing. But something about her face in the half dark made me stop. Wait, for real? Elevating her head from the pillow, she nodded. She looked like she was seeking advice. 
I was happy to give it. Moms don't get crushes. <laughs> He's very nice and helpful, she added. Everyone is nice and helpful. That is not enough for a crush. I sounded matter of fact. I couldn't see her expression in the darkened room, but I kissed her on the forehead. I echoed what she said to me whenever I was gripped with unrequited teenage passion. It's a phase. Your life will be back to normal soon. <laughs> Two years flew by, and I'd forgotten that conversation, but it came back to me full force at the sight of my dad, standing shaking in the middle of my room. My sister, for once devoid of laughter, switched between crying and halting breaths. Your mother is in Florida. Did you know? I did know. I had known she was in Florida, but it was at that moment in my room I put together that there might have been someone else. Earlier that day, she had called me, feeling guilty, I suspect, and confessed she wasn't at a work conference in Chicago, but she was actually in Florida. She told me she had just wanted a weekend to herself. Nothing wrong with that, I thought. I was in my Virginia Wolf phase and believed every woman ought to have a vacation of one's own. <laughs> I don't know what I know, I finally replied to my father. The room ran out of air. But hang on, I reached for my Nokia phone instead of the landline. Let me call her. My sister and I left the room and I gripped the phone in my hands thinking about what I should say. Should I tell her I knew she lied? Should I tell her I guess I kind of understood? Please come back, I started, trying to be as automated as the voicemail message. You can't undo anything, and you have to know that your actions have consequences for everyone when you're in a family. I'm not mad, just call us back. Later that evening, when all my homework was done, I knocked on my dad's door. In all the books I had read, I'd never learned how to communicate this way. How does someone ask far off and stern Mr. Rochester how he's feeling? What happens if Jane Eyre really does leave for good? Um, I wavered in the doorway. My dad was sitting at his computer, but it wasn't on. He was staring at a blank screen. He stared at me, saying nothing, and I stared back. I realized how alike we were. Nearly the same face, only his came with a much bigger mustache. I realized how little I knew. I had been so invested in reworking the quirks of my parents into pre-existing narratives that I had never known them as people. I was so enmeshed in who they could and should be that I'd forgotten to find out who they actually were. Through my parents' story of betrayal, I found a betrayal of my own. What I had yearned for, the cohesive story of us, ended up removing the stuff that might have made us cohesive vulnerability. Um, I tried again. What happened? I hovered off awkwardly in the doorway while my dad told me. He had been in the grocery store when one of my mom's friends broke the news to him. I was too shy to ask him what he had done in that moment. Was he in the produce section, dropping the bananas in a state of shock? Was he browsing down an aisle and then stuck immobilized behind his cart? I suppose those details didn't matter. Not then. We would have to learn and decipher each other all over again. But this time, for real. Um. 
Stay tuned for a conversation between Sadoff and me in which we talk about the events following her story and wax philosophical. Would you be willing to talk about what, what happened with your family after after well, the events uh, after yeah, the, sure. the, where you left us hanging before? Well, we're always like dramatic about everything. We're like the Kardashians in Acosta County. So, <laughs> yeah. So we're always dramatic about the little things. But then with like big life things, we're surprisingly really calm. Um, I don't really know much about like the aftermath because I went to college like the year after. But gotcha. just going home like for like Thanksgiving breaks and Christmas breaks. So they're still together. No, no they, okay, they divorced okay, okay. and then um, my mom's remarried and my sister's in college and my she still like visits my dad a lot. Gotcha. And there was really no drama. It just kind of happened. And then there's always like little like bursts. It's like weird. It's like I think nothing is really resolved in life, especially with us. And so sure, um, like things will be fine for a couple of years and then there will be like kind of these like glimmerings of tension and then they kind of just go away tension between everybody or so it'll mostly be stemming like from your dad or your mom or both both like my mom will want to be friends with my dad and he'll say no and then um my mom will like want to come over and hang out and then not it's just it's yeah. a really it's just like a very like sedated back and forth gotcha yeah. so your dad i assume views your mom as the bad guy no, I think, you know, at this point, everyone kind of realizes that everyone is culpable in some mm. way. And so, and he, I think, but you know, su surprisingly, everyone got what they wanted. So there isn't a bad guy, really. Did your dad remarry? No, I, and I think he like prefers it that way. The bachelor. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, he had three girls in his house ah, for yeah, so yeah, many yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And now he finally sure. has the, the peace and solace <laughs> that he's always wanted. That's funny. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, very mature to not blame to just the one person because I mean the way you describe it in the story he, he kind of do doesn't sound like a tyrant but certainly like a patriarch or yeah but I think yeah. like when you're 17 your dad is always a tyrant to you so I was trying to like write it in that kind of headspace sure but sure. now you know it I can see that everything came from just make just the fear that not everything will be taken care of and so working double hard like extra hard to make yeah. sure that things are being taken care of like, like emotionally just you know with like make sure that there's money for Sadaf and Sara to go to school uh, make sure there's money for my mom's master degree program you know and like healthcare, and just like all those like things really weighed down on him so he didn't really have a lot you know he didn't really like let himself enjoy his life so much so I think he's starting to now so so you do you notice a change in him like as I know within my parents like I noticed they I'm sure with most people's parents you get a lot more freedom uh, emotional freedom or and obviously physical freedom like do you see him like letting go of a lot of the strict rules and things you tried to impose on you when you were well 17? I'm still too afraid to um, kind of check and see for myself like when <laughs> I go home to visit I still make sure I'm like back by 9 p.m. I don't. Uh, I'm like too afraid to push it. But Sara, yeah, I but Sarah does what she wants. Oh, well, so. he disciplined you well then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's very interesting to me that you were betrayed uh, by narrative in the story. Uh, you you had attributed kind of Jane Eyre characters to your parents, and then that ended up being far too reductive, mm -hmm. and and you you kind of had to break out of that. Um, and that's kind of ironic because 
usually storytelling is really good for like bridging the divide between people and instead of like making categories that are unfair or reductive so do you ever find yourself reattributing narratives to people in an unfair way um yes and no i guess for me what i'm most interested in like these days because i'm going to school for an mfa in nonfiction, mm-hmm. i'm really interested in how we know what we know and so I realized, so when I was writing this, I realized that I was just pulling from a lot of things that I just assumed were truths and then just realizing that they were just stuff that I had made up. And so just instead of like going back and getting like the, like calling my mom or my dad and being like, so can you tell me how it really was? I just wanted to kind of see, I wanted to use these kind of narratives that I had made to kind of explore it for myself to see where they, you know, aligned or kind of where they covered up something or where they were just you know when there are gaps the mind compensates yeah, so just sure, kind sure. of what I did back then yeah and Every, revisiting them now everybody does that to a certain mm-hmm. extent I suppose um, are there characters that they better resemble they're just my mom and my yeah, dad now that's probably the best way to look at it <laughs> yeah well I guess if I had to pick it would be kind of like an arrested development kind of thing yeah. well that show is so accessible from many angles mm-hmm. because it just shows like a very damaged emotional psyche from uh, <laughs> a very American point of view, even though your parents are not American. Um, but I think it's best. We're just so unabashed about it that we just like enjoy ourselves yeah. at this point. So it's kind of, it's like fun now. That's it was, good. it was devastating when you're like a teenager, but now you just have to like sure. laugh about it. Yeah. I feel like my folks are like that too, where we kind of like laugh about and celebrate our, our damage now instead mm-hmm. of, instead of uh, trying to hide it. And uh, it's good to let it out. For sure. Do you feel like, well, you said you had studied gender studies. That is a, a, a lot of that is about breaking free of pre pre-existing narratives. So in your own life, uh, have you ever felt those have been attributed to you? And is there, have there been moments where you, you've broken out of someone's expectation or, or story that somebody had about you? Well, it's like hard for me because I feel like a lot of it has been self-imposed. Like, oh, if you're like the only Iranian family in um, like a predominantly white community, Mm -hmm. you kind of there's like this pressure to be the ambassador, especially after 9-11. I was like running, being like, look, we're not evil. We're not evil and we're not crazy and we're not terrorists. Like, look how nice I am. And so like in a way I was trying to like be a model minority. yeah, Yeah. And then. And then and when I got into college, when we saw that, you know, there was more diversity, but really not by much. And so I kind of relaxed. But then... Where'd you go to undergrad? Oh, I went to UChicago. Okay, just in yeah, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Because I was like, oh, I'm, I can't wait to, like, you know, meet everyone from different walks of life. And I did. But then there was still, like, a di- there was, like, a different type of pressure. Like, instead of being, like, the model minority, you kind of had to... I don't know. You just had to be like a certain person in front of different people. And like there's a performance going on. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like a lot of it is performative. That's a really great way to say it. Is, uh, mm. is b- being you Chicago, is it a sort of intellectual performance or a well, cultural it's just performance? Like you were, there was kind of this pressure to be an expert on everything. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. like, oh, if you're Iranian, then you clearly you must know everything about everything. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't want to lie. And be like, I actually have no idea. I have a friend from who, from who went to Chicago and then Harvard. And I found myself doing that to her, being like, well, what, what, what do you know? You must know mm-hmm. about this, right? You're a smart person. 
person, right? And she would just straight up be like, I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, didn't ever study that or learn that. And, you know, I had to check my own story about narrative about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting. You go from like a model minority and then you have to be like the minority specialist. And now I kind of just delight in my ignorance is like, well, I don't know, because now I think like there was a pressure to like not admit that you were like a hybrid, like you had to either be one or the other. Sure. And now I'm just, you know. What do you mean by hybrid? I guess um, like you have to play up certain parts of your identity depending on like the space that you're in Uh and so i think sociologists called that code switching code switching yeah yeah. and you don't even realize that you're doing it half the time until you like leave a party and you're like oh i was such an awful version of myself you know like (laughs) well there's oh my dad i've seen my dad okay so he is japanese from hawaii Mm -hmm. and he uh when when he speaks to he lives in iowa so when he speaks to other iowans it's it's like the queen's english you know just like very proper and perfect and stuff like <laughs> that but when he gets around his hawaiian uh brother oh my gosh it sounds like a complete switch like he'll be speaking like this i mean like hey brah you go to that buffet over there oh it's so <laughs> good so good it's and and pigeon and it goes straight into pigeon and uh yeah that's interesting how we kind of become different people mm. in different situations Sometimes it is kind of a lie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So you feel like you're better at seeing people now for who they are? Well, I'm trying. I don't know. I yeah. feel like it's always um, it's always a process. You can't you don't just like reach actualization well, and then yeah. you've like then you're like set for life with like now I understand everyone as they are. Yeah, enlightenment's very mm-hmm. elusive, right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember who said it, but there was like this, it's always like a process of becoming, like you're always becoming to another person and, and like other people are always becoming to you. And I really like that. So whenever I um, think that I truly understand someone, I have, I like remind myself that, you know, like this is just another narrative, yeah. right? I, so I've heard, I've read Michel Foucault and Donna Haraway, who we discussed previously, talk about the becoming together. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way to put it. Because then we don't have to tag anybody with any predestined attributes or whatever. Yeah, and I think, you know, like we were talking about it earlier, how like your dad, like he was like playing up his like Iowa aspects Mm -hmm. and then he was playing his like Hawaiian aspects. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, um, there's this cool notion by Hannah Arendt, Arendt, like plurality. And so how instead of feeling this pressure to play up certain things in certain spaces we should just kind of make the basis of everything this plurality like everyone can embody all of their like contradictions and um simultaneously yeah simultaneously and so i'm trying to find a way to kind of do that um yeah does that does that mean would that mean like a more authentic self to you to constantly embody all of those or i'm like wary to you as authentic um, that term because it's yeah. just I don't know we, I don't know if we can ever be authentic sure especially when I mean I I personally agree with kind of like these theories on performativity and how we're always like performing in some way or another so if we're performing I think there's no such thing as an authentic performance but I don't know if there's such thing as like authenticity authenticity yeah capital A authenticity yeah, yeah. too elusive I agree I agree cool well, it was great talking to you, Sadaf. Thank you Thanks, very much. Nick. It was a good talk. Good talk. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Yeah.
Sadoff's story was curated by C.P. Chang. She was directed by Liz Rice, and the sound design was by yours truly. Don't forget to rate us and leave a comment on iTunes. It really does help. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Nick Kawahara, and this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.